day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is fitting for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all our partakers of my grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long after you all in the heart of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Let's pray together. Brother Rosario, can you pray for us? Amen. Please be seated. There was a time in my youth where I didn't do that great at English, and I remember struggling a little bit for a while. That's kind of a sad tale because my mother was an English teacher, and uh, no worse thing than being an English teacher and having to listen to your child say things wrong all the time. But one of the areas that I had some trouble with was learning where to put commas and identifying run-on sentences. And um, I know I had some papers that came back with lots of red, and mom had to kind of sit with me and work with me. And the good news, I think, is that it eventually clicked, and now I know about run-on sentences. Paul, when he writes, uses run-on sentences. Now, he writes in Greek, so the rules are all different there. But what we're looking at tonight is one of those big run-on sentences, and they all kind of connect together, and it's very uh, much a string of, of all related thoughts In verse 3, we're going to begin, and Lord willing, I don't know if we'll get past verse 6 tonight or not, um, but I wanted to read all of the verses. Um, But but Paul's writing to this church uh, at Philippi, and as I mentioned last week, he's been imprisoned for approximately four years at this point. Two years in Caesarea was more prison-like, and these last two years in Rome, he's been able to be in his own hired house, but he is chained to a Roman soldier. Notice what he starts out, you know, last week, verse 1 and 2 is very much introduction. The, the heart of his letter, he begins in verse 3, I thank my God on every remembrance of you. Paul says that this church and these people were often in his mind and he was thankful to God for them. The fact of the matter is, is when you're locked up in a, in a house on home confinement, there's only so much you can do. You know, Paul didn't have Wi-Fi. Paul didn't have TV. Paul didn't even have a whole library of books at his disposal. And if you imagine that, you know, what would you do with that much time to yourself? Um, he, wasn't in, he wasn't in isolation, per se, because he could have guests. And there was Jews that came to visit him, and he witnessed to them, and he mentions co-laborers that would come. So he had times where he could visit. And the Bible also gives the indication that he witnessed to the soldiers that were beside him. But you know one thing I think Paul did a lot of? He prayed. He prayed. And there are certain moments in life where we're pushed to prayer because we have such problems or such needs that we really turn to the Lord. But one situation where some people turn to the Lord in prayer is when they have great physical limitation and they're not able to do a whole lot. And they have to sit or they're on a hospital bed or something. And they turn to prayer. Paul says that he's giving thanks to God. He's locked up. He's chained to two soldiers. But he's giving thanks for these people. Who are these people to him? They are people that, yes, he is one to Christ and he loves them in the Lord as their spiritual father, but it was not just a one-way sort of love. 
because they loved him back. And we're going to see it a little further in the passage about the way that they showed their love to him. But he says, every time I think of you, I thank God for you. Oh, thank God for the Philippians. Thank God for the Philippians. I think sometimes you probably thank the Lord very broadly, you know, for the church. But I also think sometimes he kind of went through, thank you for Lydia. Thank you for that slave girl. Thank you for that jailer. And maybe went through down some of the names and some of the people and played back some of those events when he was there in Philippi. But notice he does call him, I think, my God. And I do just want to point this out, that that's very personal. Very personal. And if you worship a a false god, you don't have a personal god. Those are gods to be appeased and to kind of be afraid of. But but Paul says, I think, my God. And he's willing to ascribe that possessive noun to God, my God. And we have the almighty God, the ruler and creator of the vast universe who can also be ours. And that is something special that we shouldn't miss. Before we pass by verse three, I want to ask a couple questions. What are you thankful for? Maybe if I just said right now, three things, what are you thankful for? Make a list of three. And um, I wonder if people would make your list. Paul mentions that he gives thanks for these people. And in fact, when you read a lot of his letters, he says he gives thanks for those people. And we want to be thankful for items and and money and buildings and AC and health and different things. But we also should be thankful for people, people in our life, the people that God has given us. Um, On the flip side, then, too, the question should be asked is, do other people thank God for you? Are you living in a way and, and loving and, and in touch with the Lord in a way where others would give thanks to God for you for the impact and the blessing that, that um, they've had on your life? So he says, on every remembrance of you, and then in verse 4, we see, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request, request with joy. He says, always in every prayer of mine. And again, as I mentioned, I think he's praying quite a bit these days. And he mentions them. Maybe he kind of went down through the churches, you know, praying for this church, praying for this church, praying for this church. But he has a regularity to the way he's praying for these people. But I want you to see how in verse 4, he he goes out of his way to say, you all. Now, he's already, in verse 3, he says, in remembrance of you, okay? The word you there is plural, okay? It's it's not singular, it's plural. The remembrance of you, plural, in verse 3. But what you're going to see in the following few verses is you're going to see the phrase you all appear, I believe, four times. So he says in verse 4, making always in every prayer of mine for you all. If you go down to verse 7, he says, even as it is fitting for me to think this of you all. And then towards the end of the verse, um, he says, you all are partakers of my grace. And then in verse 8, he says, how greatly I long after you all. And I think Paul is using this phrase, you all, to encourage them in this way of unity. If you were here last week, you remember one of the themes of Philippians is unity and to be unified. And Paul, in each of these verses that we we just read, he mentions you all. And there's an idea that he's seeing them as a group, comprehensively, and he's including everyone. So when he says giving thanks for you all, he wasn't just thankful for the ones with you know, the most money to give him or the, you know, the ones that did the best spiritually. He was thankful for them all. And then as he goes on to, to use this phrase in all these other ways, he's saying, you all, you all. And um, 
again, this church, I don't know if it's a reflection on the unity that they had, uh, but I certainly know that it's a reflection on what Paul wanted for them, that they would be indeed unified. There's a level of, of equality where he's including everyone in his treatment, in his prayers and his treatment of the church. The last thing I want to show you in verse 4, though, is he says, making request with joy. Making request with joy. So earlier he talked about giving thanks. Now he talks about making request. And let me just remind us that praying is both of those things. And our prayers ought to include both of those things, making requests and giving thanks. But he says then with joy, with joy. You know that word joy is kind of an important word for the book of Philippians, isn't it? And the first mention of the word joy in Philippians involves Paul's prayers. Paul's prayers. And sometimes I think we tend to think of joy in reference to people. First and foremost, right? Joyful to my wife. I need to be joyful in the Lord's house. I need to be joyful in my spirit towards my neighbor and in this situation. I need to have joy. But Paul is referencing having joy when? When he's alone with God in prayer. Unless you include the Roman soldiers sitting next to him. Okay? But the point is this. He's saying, I, when I pray and I give thanks and I make my requests, I do so with joy. And I was thinking about how, you know, joy should be manifest in our prayers as well. Do, do our prayers express joy? That, that kind of jumped out to me and I thought, wow, do my prayers express joy? Um, but he, he says that, making requests with joy. Um, you know, if I've been locked up for four years, I'd probably start feeling sorry for myself. I'd probably be like, it's time. Time up, Lord. My request might just be, get me out of here. Get me out of here, right? Over and over. But here he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And he's doing it with joy. And he's giving thanks. And we just see a beautiful side to Paul here after these years of confinement. Verse 5, he goes, now in a way, verse 4 is a little bit of a parenthesis. Now I know there isn't a parenthesis in the text. But I want to just read verse 3 and connect it to verse 5, okay? I thank my God on every remembrance of you for your fellowship in the gospel. And so the verse 4 is kind of clarifying, but verse 5 really picks up with the end of the thought of verse 3. On every remembrance of you, he gives thanks for their fellowship in the gospel. I want to take a little time and talk about this word fellowship. We think the word fellowship often means what? What does it mean to fellowship? Get together. Okay. Meals. Meals. We're going to have an after-church fellowship, right? Um, what else do we think of when we think of fellowship? That, say it louder. Talking. That's right. We think of talking. We'll have a time of fellowship, and we might think of talking. And all of those would be you know, included. We wouldn't say that that doesn't count or that shouldn't be used with the word fellowship. But this word fellowship is used in the scripture in a number of ways that were a little surprising to me. And the word itself um, has the idea of participation, partnership, cooperation. There's another word that we use somewhat regularly around the church that is this word koinonia. Does anyone know what word that is? That's the Greek word for fellowship, but I'm sorry. The, there's another way it's translated, and we use that word around the church. We just did it last Sunday. Communion as well, communion. And so the, the term is used of the Lord's table, 
And the term is used of, you know, fellowship as we think of it as talking together and unity of spirit, oneness, and all those things. But it's also, what I'm wanting to show us with this word is it goes beyond just food and conversation. It includes a unity and a oneness of spirit, but it even goes beyond that as well. And it, it has this idea of teamwork or practical involvement. That's that idea of cooperation. And I want us to hold our spot here and turn to 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9, there's two things I'm going to show us in 2 Corinthians 9 that connect us with Philippians here. And the first is this word that I referenced that we're talking about here, fellowship or koinonia. It's in verse 13. Uh, okay, now verse 13 has this word in it. So let's read verse 13 and see if we can pick the word out. While by the proof of this ministry they glorify God for your professed submission to the gospel of Christ and for your generous distribution to them and to all men. Can anybody pick it out? It's the word distribution. And the idea here is that he's speaking of fellowship in reference to giving. And I found that so helpful and so interesting. But you want to know what's even more interesting about 2 Corinthians 9.13 is hold your place right here and look back down at verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4. Verse 4. Notice it says, lest perhaps those from Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared. He, this word is used in the context of the Philippian church giving. And the Philippian church was in Macedonia, okay? Macedonia was the place where the, Mas where, where the Philippian church was. So this, you know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul was saying, we're taking this offering, and the, the Macedonians are doing this, and you need to be involved. But that word fellowship is used of financial giving. And uh, he tells them in Philippians 1, I'm giving thanks for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And I believe when he says this idea of fellowship, he's including the giving. Because several times in the book, he makes mention of the gift that they sent. And he's, I believe that's included in this idea. And so he's saying, I'm thankful for your cooperation in the gospel work. I'm thankful your, for your participation in the gospel work. I am thankful for your partnership that, that we have in the gospel ministry together. And this, uh, this appreciation Paul had was not just thankful that they got saved, but it was a thankfulness for what went beyond that. And when they got saved, they said, how can we work together to help Paul and to help the gospel ultimately go forward? And so um, he includes the, the giving in that broader idea of fellowship in the gospel. But notice he does say from the first day until now. So I had to think about it. Well, when was the first day? What does he mean by this? And um, I may have this wrong, but my idea is in the first day that Paul saw the gospel work go forward in Philippi. So if you go back to Acts 16, verse 15, we're going to read here about what happened. Notice what happened right after Lydia gets saved. Acts 16, verse 15 says, When she and her household were baptized, she, now notice this, begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house 
and abide there. And she compelled us. Do you realize the day that Lydia got saved, she told Paul and his group, you come, stay at my house. She wanted to host them. And you know what that sounds like? That sounds like fellowship in the gospel ministry. Fellowship in the work of the gospel. And so Paul says, I am so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for you, Philippians, because you have partnered in the gospel work and you have given and you have stood by me and and encouraged me and prayed for me in this gospel ministry. And I give thanks to God for you. This is a good work. Can I just remind us that we as a church are involved in this precise idea? Just two weeks ago, I was in Nepal. We were in Nepal, excuse me. We were in Nepal. But you know, those are people who are spreading the gospel, and we are involved in the fellowship of the gospel with them. And we send them funds, and we pray for them, and we think of them, and we ask the Lord to to help us help them. That's exactly what Paul is doing when he's sitting here. He's saying, man, I'm so thankful for this church and for what they're doing. And what I'm saying is we have an opportunity as a church to have other people thank God for this church because of our prayers for them and our giving and our standing behind them in the gospel ministry. It is an encouraging thing to know that there's someone on your side, someone that's fighting not just for the Lord overall, but that's working with you for the Lord. And Lloyd and Todd both indicated their thanks for the church and their thanks for the fact that we could come and all that. That's just one example, the mission trip. But I want us to to see that, that application. Now, we also do that here in the church itself as we band together to serve the Lord right here as well. But I think Paul had a sweet spot in his heart for these people at Philippi. They gave over and over and over again to him, and he didn't forget that. Now, let's come to our final verse, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful verse. It's one that I really love. Um, Paul says that he's confident of something for them. And I don't know if he was encouraging them from the angle that they needed this and maybe it was they didn't have this confidence and he's reminding them of it. Or maybe it's just more from the idea that he can see all that God has already done and he knows that God's going to keep working in their lives. I don't know precisely his thought. But he says he's confident that God is going to keep doing what he started. God's not going to end his work. A lot of times this verse is used simply to teach that God, that a person who's saved will not one day be lost. And it is a very good verse for that purpose, because if God saves a person and starts a work in a person, and then just they're somehow lost again, then he's not working in them anymore, right? So it is a good verse for that. It's helpful. But I don't even think that that's Paul's main point in when he says it. I think he's trying to point them to God's present work in their life today. Now, 1 John 3, 2 tells us this. Now, we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2. And with 1 John 3, 2, it's the idea that when Christ comes, we'll be just like Christ. But this verse, we kind of think sometimes of this verse in the same vein, but this verse is talking about the space in between those two things. 
And he's saying, God is going to work in you until the day of Christ. Until the day that we see Christ. And that working is not going to stop. That is encouraging news. Have you ever had someone give up on you? Have you ever had someone say, yeah, they'll never amount to much. They're a loser. Whatever their thoughts or words to you were. But the Bible tells us that if we're born of God, God has begun a work in us, and He will not stop. That gives me hope. That gives me a great deal of hope. Because no matter how much of a mess I'm in, or how much of a trial I'm in, or how maybe confused I am, the fact is, is God is working in me. Period. He's at work. And He's not going to stop until the day of Christ. You know why He's going to stop in the day of Christ? Because we'll be like Him. There's no more need for that work after that point. We shall be transformed at that point. So the, word, the phrase being confident is in the perfect tense, which means Paul's saying, I have been confident in the past, and I'm all the way up to the present still confident. And the idea is, when was this past point he started to have this confidence about them? It's the day they got saved. It's the day they got saved. That's what I believe. This, he was confident in the past. He's still confident in the present of this very thing. He who has begun. God has only begun His work in us. He's not finished it. He's begun. He's started. He's introduced it. Now the other thing I do notice is Paul does not say the day of your death. That might be what we are thinking, you know, oh, well, the day of our death. But he uses the day of Christ, and I don't know all the reasons why, but I wonder if it's because he was anticipating that the Lord would return rather than that people would be dying. And it was that ever ready looking for the coming of the Lord. Um, so that, that did jump out to me a little bit also as kind of a way that we don't always think of it. Paul is expecting God to keep working. And you know what this does is it breeds hope in the human heart. God is still working. God's still working in me. And if this verse is true of all the saints, then that means God is still working in you. Right? And so God is working in all of us. We know the song, He's still working on me to make me to be what I ought to be. Um, I don't know the rest of it, but maybe one day if the Lord helps me, I can learn all of it. And then I'll be able to sing all of it because He's going to work on me so I can sing it right. No. Um, But the... The other thing that this helps us with is it helps people, it helps one another, us all, to look at each other through the eyes of this verse. Because sometimes we see failures in others that are Christians, and we kind of think, oh, oh, I don't know, I don't know about them, you know, I don't know if that can ever be. But the Bible says God's still working in them. God still, God hasn't abandoned them, and so He's working in them, He's working in me, it, it allows us to look at people through the eyes of what God can do. Not what is, but what can be. We'll revisit that in just a moment. The last thing I think it shows us is the faithfulness of our God. He is faithful. He is committed to doing His work. What does it say in Ephesians 2.10? For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So we're His workmanship, and once we are His workmanship, He's going to work in us, and He's a faithful God that won't stop. That's God's faithfulness. 
as we close, I want to just share a story from um, one of the resources that I was studying out of. I think it was by Ironside, if I remember right. And it was just a simple story of an artist who had conceived in his mind a great picture, and he meant it to be the masterpiece of his life. He was working on a large canvas and putting on the daubs of paint and kind of the background, the grays that were to compose um, the, the base of the painting. When a friend entered unnoticed and the artist worked on with enthusiasm, he was not aware that the onlooker was present. But he finally happened to turn and he saw him and he exclaimed, what do you think of this? I intend it to be the greatest work I've ever done. His friend burst into a laugh and exclaimed, why, to be frank, I don't think much of it at all. It seems to me to be only a great big daub of paint. In reply, the artist at once, sensing the situation, said, you cannot see what, it is going, what is going to be there, but I can. And as God works in us, we look at others, we look at ourselves, and we kind of shake our head. But God sees the end. God sees what he will make of us, what we will be on that day where we stand before him in eternity. Verse 6 gives me so much hope, and it gives me such a thankfulness to the Lord for his work in us. Let's close in prayer tonight. Lord, I thank you so much that we can look through these verses, that we can be encouraged, that we can be taught, that your word can bear fruit in our lives. I pray that we would be a thankful people. I pray that we'd remember our position in the fellowship of the gospel. And help us also, Lord, to remember that your work once started will not stop until you have finished your work. I praise you, Lord. I thank you for your faithful commitment to us. And um, may you do your good work in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Any questions or comments before we shift to our prayer time? Okay. Well, um, I had a prayer sheet. Boy, I sure don't know where I set it. <laughs>